You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. There we go. How are we doing this morning? I am doing woo also. Uh, Guys, it's great to be with you. My name is Matt Tolander. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Midtown. Would you guys join me in standing for the reading of Scripture this morning? Our, Our reading this morning and our first teaching text is from the 12th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So Holy Spirit, would you speak through this scripture that you inspired? Would you remove distractions from us, and would you give us focus and energy and clarity so that these can be to us the very words of God? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, they say that when you do stuff like this, when you get up and talk in front of people, that the first 10 minutes of what you say is pretty much wasted time, uh, because it takes people that long to sort of get on the same page with you and get stuff out of the mind that, it, that was brought into the room and such. Uh, but I don't have that kind of time this morning. And so what I want you to do is write down four words. You can put these in your phone, you can put them on your notes, but just write down these four words. And then if at any point this morning you get lost, uh, you will be able to look at these four words um, or later after this morning when you forget what this sermon was about. You'll be able to look at these four words, and they will give you a roadmap for how worship works. We are continuing our series this morning, Why We Worship, and Jake opened us last week talking about that we worship God because it is fitting to worship Him. We worship God because He is worthy of worship, because He is worthy of glory, Uh, the only one truly worthy of worship and worthy of glory. And and today's talk is is about another reason why we worship, but it's also a lot about why we don't. Uh, And so here's the four words I want you to write down, and these are our roadmap for how worship works. The first word is revelation. Revelation. The second word is desolation. Desolation. The third word is consolation. Consolation. And the fourth word is adoration. 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 So revelation, desolation, consolation, adoration. And here's, here's my big point this morning. You'll, you might see the word gratitude at the top of your note card. Here's my point. Deep adoration of God flows out of deep consolation from God. Okay? Deep adoration of God flows out of deep consolation from God. Deep consolation from God is only experienced by those who are in a state of desolation before God. Okay? Deep consolation from God is only experienced by those who are in a state of desolation before God. And oftentimes what brings us to a place of desolation before God, at least where the sin in our lives is concerned, is a revelation of God to us. You see this in like Isaiah 6 
when Isaiah has his vision of the throne room of God and the angels are circling and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah has this realization when God is revealed to him, he says, woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. Like God has been revealed to me and now I am in a state of desolation comparing myself to him. I'm getting ahead in my notes right now, but, but that's, that's where we're going. Okay, A revelation of God, a true revelation of God, creates in our spirit a sense of desolation because our sin is exposed in the light of his holiness and his glory. And when we are in a state of deep desolation, then we are prepared to experience deep consolation from God. And the overflow of that consolation is adoration. So that's where we're going. If you get lost or if you forget later, you can look at those four words and see how this works. So let's look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. And I want to sort of move toward a definition or at least a description of what worship is. There's a what, a how, and a why in these two verses that Paul wants us to see. Paul, the author of this, uh, of this letter. So here's the what. The what of worship. Uh, Three key phrases. Present yourselves as living sacrifices. That's the what. So what does it mean to present? What does it mean to present? Uh, Paul has probably a specific image in mind when he uses the word present. There was a moment, if you were living uh, as a Jewish person during this period, and you were bringing your sacrifice uh, to the temple, there would be a moment when you would lay your animal, the dove or the goat or whatever it was, on the altar, and you would keep your hands on it, and then the priest would put his hands on it. So both of your hands are on this animal, and the priest would inspect it, and he would see if it was an acceptable offering to God. And if it was an acceptable offering to God, then you would take your hands off and hand it over to the priest. That's what Paul has in mind when he says present. There is a moment of evaluation as to whether the offering that is being offered is acceptable to God. But in this case, it's not an animal that we're offering. And it's not just a song that we're offering. It's not just words that we're offering. In the NIV translation that we read from, Paul says, offer your bodies, which is sort of a shorthand for offer everything you do in your body to God. Offer your whole life. Present yourself to God. So in other words, Worship is not an act, it's a life. It's not an act, it's a life. It's an all-of-life response. It's everything about you, all the time, everywhere, public and private, outside and inside. That's your worship. And that, your whole life, is what you lay on the altar before God, and then, if, if it's acceptable, you take your hands off. It's all of us. And so, singing may be an on-ramp to worship, but it's not the highway, It's not the highway. The highway is what comes next in the verse. Paul says, offer your bodies as what? Living sacrifices. So singing is the on-ramp to worship, but sacrifice is the highway. Sacrifice is the highway of worship. So what this means then, if we're supposed to be presenting our whole selves, our whole life, an integrated self, um, and if sacrifice is the highway, then what this means is that God is not honored by public expressions of worship on Sunday morning, which do not correspond to private worship in our day-to-day life. He's not honored by it. That's not an acceptable offering to God. He's also not honored by um, our going through the religious motions. 
That doesn't honor God. Uh, He's also not honored by a compartmentalized life that is attentive to him only like on Sunday mornings and small group night, but is otherwise inattentive to him the rest of our waking life. Those sorts of things don't honor God. We are called uh, as a spiritual act of worship, as the essence of worship, to offer, to present our entire self, an integrated, whole, uncompartmentalized life before God. So how do we go about doing that? How do we go about integrating our life so that we can put it before God? That's what he's going to explain next, starting in verse 2. So that was the what. Present yourselves living sacrifices. That's the what. Here's the how. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the how. So when he says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, what he means is, by this world is sort of this present age, the spirit of this age. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, if you marry the spirit of this age, you will find yourself a widow in the next. Paul says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this present age. So what are the cultural patterns of our present age in 21st century United States of America? What are our cultural patterns? a lot of them are perennial. I mean, a lot of them are the same sort of cultural patterns that Paul saw in his Rome. So what are the cultural patterns in our Rome, which is the United States? Uh, I think you would see the love of money. I think you would see the love of money as a cultural pattern in our country that really is the engine that drives everything that our country is about. I think you would see materialistic living as a cultural pattern. I think that you could see um, the idea that might makes right as a cultural pattern and sort of an unspoken cultural value in our country. I think you would see um, things like self-reliance or independence, personal independence, even personal liberty as sort of core values, cultural scripts uh, in our culture. You would see things like sexual excess. Uh, You see things like, um, especially with younger generations, uh, you see uh, seeking fulfillment through self-expression versus seeking fulfillment in finding myself in Christ. Uh, You see uh, a people who are neurochemically addicted to our cell phones. I just get up here and sing the same songs every time I preach. You see people who are neurochemically addicted to our cell phones. And make no mistake, you see a version of Christianity which is really just an American folk religion, a civic religion, that has nothing to do with discipleship to Jesus Christ. That's what you see. And that's what Paul is asking us to not be conformed to. The spirit of this present age. He has something in mind. And what he has in mind is transformation through the renewal of our minds. And so, in other words, we have to learn to detach from or to disidentify with worldly things, pursuits, relationships, relationship habits, um, which are conforming us to the pattern of the world, or are which, in, which are in alignment with the pattern of the world. And this kind of detachment is all over Paul's writings. You look at it um, like in Galatians 1.10, where he says, like, if I was still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. He's detached from people's opinions about him. At Galatians 6.14, may it never boast, or may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There's a cross-shaped detachment in Paul's life from the world. Or think about, think about Philippians 3. 
Like when you read Philippians 3, Paul sounds like an addict who's come out of rehab. And he's looking at, the, at his previous decisions with new eyes, with fresh eyes and a new perspective. And he's going, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. He said, everything that was to my profit, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider all things a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've suffered the loss of all things. He's like, all the assets in my account as a human being, everything I put confidence in is, is actually a liability. All of the assets in my life are actually a liability if they keep me from knowing Christ. So this is what Paul is trying to describe, this sort of attachment. It is a, a disidentification with the things of the world that we are attached to in sort of a childlike way. And so what sort of things are those? I think it's things like our career. Our career is something that we could be attached to in such a way that we're tapping it for validation or a sense of worth. Um, you might have an unhealthy attachment with your spouse. You might have an unhealthy attachment with your, with your parents, or even with your kids, or with your family. Um, we have to learn to detach from our political affiliations and political parties. Like, why do we have to detach from all of these things? Because all of these things, um, our career, our, a lot of our relationships, our wealth, our material things, our political ideas, our plans and agendas, all of those things are on a direct route to disillusion. All of those things are on a direct route to falling apart. Why? Because death will ultimately force us to detach from them all. Like, these are things that you do not take with you into the life to come. And so you're either going to detach from these things when, when your earthly life ends, or you can detach from them sooner. And all of these are, the problem with them is not only that they end in disillusion, but the problem is that they, uh, they are fallible, they are fickle. Like when we tap a relationship with another person for a sense of validation or worth or security or approval or whatever it is, eventually it's not going to come from them. And eventually they're going to let us down. And then what are you going to do? So we have to, um, I mean, the experience of our life forces us gradually, if we're willing, to detach from these things, and ultimately, we'll have to detach from them when we die anyway. And so what do we do in place of that? If that's not being conformed to the pattern of the world, if it's cultivating a kind of detachment and disidentification with a false self, with a false sense of security, with self-justification, um, the ego, I'm trying to use a lot of words here to give a lot of handles for people, because this is complicated. If we can give up that stuff, then what do we get in return? we can get the transformation of our lives through the renewing of our minds. And we develop that through an increasingly secure attachment to God. An increasingly secure attachment to God. You could call it identifying with our true self. Paul says, you know, my life is hidden Christ in God. Um, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Listen to the kind of language that Paul talks about when he talks about his relationship with Christ. Um, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you are baptized uh, into Christ, you are baptized into his death so that he, you might also be raised with him to walk in newness of life. Like Paul has all of this participation language and he sees himself and Jesus as sort of wrapped up together so tightly that the lines begin to blur between what's Paul acting and what's Jesus in Paul acting. And that's the kind of attachment that 
he wants us to come to. I think that there, this comes through, um, it can be cultivated through spiritual disciplines. Uh, in my life, I, I have um, made progress in this area through stuff like meditation, um, contemplative prayer, journaling prayer uh, at the end of every day, uh, memorizing scripture is huge, keeping a Sabbath. These disciplines can help us move from attachment to the world to attachment to God. Confidence in the world or in what the world can offer to confidence in God. Trusting in my own idea, my own ego, my own self-righteousness to trusting in a righteousness that comes from God. Spiritual disciplines can help us move down that road, but something can stop us. Something can halt us in this progression. Uh, and this is where we get to the why. This is, so the what of Romans 12, 1 and 2 is present yourselves as living sacrifices. The how is don't be conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewing of the mind. The why is all the way back at the beginning, where he says, in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. The truth is that true worship, that's what Jesus talked about, John chapter 4, woman at the well, time is coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. True worship arises out of the heart of a person who has had a, I'm going to call it a psycho-emotionally impactful encounter with the mercy of God. A, psych, a psycho-emotionally impactful encounter with the mercy of God. That's what I mean when I say consolation. Consolation. Adoration grows out of consolation. Um, now, worship is definitionally a response. Uh, it's a response because God is the constant initiator in relationship to humanity. God is the one who reveals himself to us. God is the one who reveals ourselves to us when we think we're one way and we have to understand that we are different. Um, God can disabuse us of our delusions about ourselves. And one follows the other. So any true revelation of God, this is where I was getting ahead earlier, any true revelation of God in your life will cause you to become aware of the ways in your life in which you are not in alignment with him, uh, the ways in, in which you are uh, opposing him, the ways in which you dishonor him uh, with your life. The question is, what do you do when you're confronted with it? What do you do when you're confronted with it? And here's the rub. The rub is that for us to move from being attached and identified with worldly things to being securely attached to God, uh, we have to learn to assimilate the negative. We learn to assimilate the negative. Now, here's what I mean by that. I mean that consolation only follows desolation. Consolation only follows desolation. And we can feel a sense, a, a, a feeling of desolation about a lot of things in our life. We can feel a feeling of desolation about wounds that we have, especially old wounds, maybe from childhood or from way back that have been left unhealed, unaddressed. Those can cause a feeling of desolation for us. Um, suffering in our life, senseless suffering that we didn't bring on ourselves but just comes upon us. It can create a sense of desolation. Uh, anxiety. Anxiety in your life can create a sense of desolation. There's all sorts of things that can create this sense of desolation that puts you in the place to receive consolation from God. But the thing that we're going to talk primarily about this morning is sin. 
Uh, and so I don't want you to be confused. God's mercy is not just for our sin. God's mercy is for all of us, our whole being. Um, but we're going to talk primarily about sin. And I want to propose that, like, if you, if you would say, I don't know that I've experienced the mercy of God at a psycho-emotional level in my life. I don't know that I've experienced that kind of consolation. It could be because you have not really assimilated the negatives in your life. And so what I mean when I say assimilate the negative is I mean that we have to stop pretending that our gross bits aren't there, right? Like we have to get out of denial about the sin in our lives and actually deal with it in a healthy way. That's what I mean when I say assimilate the negative. We have to take the part of us that we don't like, that we would rather compartmentalize, or even that we might be unaware of as of this moment, and we have to integrate it. And we have to see ourselves as decompartmentalized whole people. Um, and so we avoid this, though. We avoid assimilating the negative by various ways. We minimize. We minimize the sin in our lives. We explain it away. Uh, we escape it. Uh, through uh, a relationship, through an addiction, through a habit, through a, we, in, our, in our career. Uh, we can use all sorts of things to try and escape assimilating the negative in our lives. Uh, one way we try and avoid it is we try and justify it. So like, I think that all, if not all people, most people really desire to be good people, but we will settle for feeling like we are a good person or at least looking good to other people. Um, and so we will rearrange the categories in order to justify our sinful behavior so that we can feel like we're still in the right. That's self-justification. That's one way that we, uh, we avoid assimilating the negative in our lives. And the last way we avoid it is, uh, is we just straight out deny it. Like, and we're, just, we're unaware of it. Uh, it makes me think of um, an episode of South Park. That might be words you never thought you'd hear in church. Um, <laughs> Uh, it makes me think of an episode of South Park, an old episode, where Cartman uh, sees on TV an infomercial for a, like a workout supplement called uh, Weight Gain 4000, and it has 4,000 grams of saturated fat in every serving. <laughs> and he sees this infomercial and he thinks, sweet, I'm going to get jacked. And so he starts buying the supplement and starts drinking it, and it just starts to make him obese. Uh, and all of his friends are making fun of him. Cartman, like you're... <laughs> You're, you're getting fat, you're gaining weight, whatever he's going to. You're jealous because I'm more jacked than you because I'm buff and I'm going to be a beefcake and you're scrawny and, and uh, shrimpy. And this goes on through the episode. People are trying to bring it to his attention. Cartman, like, you're obese, man. You're putting on all this fat. He's like, no, I'm not. I'm getting jacked. And finally, at the end of the episode, he has inflated to the size where he takes up his whole bed and he can't get out of bed. He looks like the mom in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. And he gets interviewed on national television on Geraldo. And uh, Geraldo asks him, Cartman, like, do you have a message for all the people who are watching? And he says, uh, never give up on your dreams. I'm living proof that if you work hard, you can attain your goals. <laughs> like in the very final moment, he's still in such denial about what's going on. And this is exactly the way that we can be about our sin. Like often, oftentimes the thing that we're in denial about is plainly obvious to everybody around us. And sometimes they're trying to bring it to our attention and we won't hear it. We're like, I'm living proof. If you, if you work hard, you can achieve your goals. Um, but when we get real about our gross bits and we bring them before God in an honest way, we experience integration, uh, we experience mercy, we experience forgiveness, healing, transformation, and we can come to peace with being um, 
as Martin Luther said, and this is Latin, but simul justus et peccator, simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously justified and a sinner. That is the paradox that we all live in as Christian people, and that's the tension that we all live in. <laughs> is a, we still have a sinful nature that we have to contend with. We still have a power of sin in the world that affects us in various ways, and yet we are also deeply loved and accepted by God, and he calls us righteous and his beloved children. And so we have these two uh, sort of competing, I don't know if I'd call them sides, but ideas about ourselves that are both true and that seem paradoxical, and somehow God is able to hold those in perfect tension. And so as we approach attachment to God, we will approach being able to hold that in the same kind of tension. We will be able to live as integrated whole people because we look at the gross bits in our life and we go, I know what to do with that. I experience desolation from this. I bring it to God so I can experience consolation. I don't minimize, deny, excuse, explain, escape, none of that. I just take it, I admit it, I accept it about myself, and I bring it to God and I experience his acceptance. And so the more we assimilate the negative in our lives, the more we allow God's mercy to come to bear on our psycho-emotional lives, and the less we feel the need to look to uh, worldly attachments for our sense of belonging or validation or justification, etc. And then you will experience the consolation of God. Or as my mom would say, you will know that you know that you know that you know the mercy of God. So I want to look at two familiar stories in Scripture that, that sort of show these dynamics at play. So that if what I'm saying so far is confusing, you can see it at work in a story. Um, I was going to use Flannery O'Connor's short story, Revelation, to illustrate this, so if you, I, I decided I would do something a bit different, but if, if you are the kind who likes assigned reading from sermons, Flannery O'Connor's short story, Revelation, is probably online somewhere. Uh, Flannery O'Connor is kind of like the original South Park in some ways, so you will enjoy her. Um, but so here's, here's an example of how someone in Scripture assimilates the negative, so that you can see it happen. Um, David's sin with Bathsheba. Pretty familiar story, lots of people know it, okay? He's, all the soldiers are off at war, he's at home, problem numero uno. Uh, he's taking a nap in the middle of the day, he takes a walk, he sees Bathsheba, she's bathing on the roof across the street, he sends for her, he uses his kingly power uh, in order to be intimate with her, I'm trying to speak euphemistically, uh, and she becomes pregnant, and long story short, he has her husband killed and passes the baby off as his own. It's like, it's just deceit after deceit after deceit, sin after sin, and it becomes absolutely sinister. By the end of it, David looks like an absolute monster. And there's the understatement of all understatements at the end of 2 Samuel 11 where the story is found. It says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You don't say. And in 2 Samuel 12... Nathan, the prophet, goes to confront David. He goes to confront David. And how does he do it? He tells him a story. He tells him a story about a bad man. And David listens to the story about a bad man, and he, at the end of the story, he exclaims, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you're the man. You're the man. That's revelation. That's revelation. And David, it's, he was told the truth about himself. I mean, like, have you ever had a moment like that 
where someone told you the truth about yourself and you couldn't deny it. There's like nothing you can do about it. You just have to, get to admit it. Like, oh yeah, that, that wasn't on my radar. I was high on my own supply. I had no idea. You've pointed it out to me and now I can't avoid it. That's revelation. Very often God reveals things like that to us through uh, the people in our lives. And so Nathan confronts David. He says, you are the man. And what's David's response? I've sinned against God. And we get in a picture or a sort of glimpse into David's, the way that he processes this emotionally because he writes a psalm about it. Um, He writes a song to be sung in their religious gatherings about how bad he screwed up. That's some pretty assimilated negativity, all right? That, like that, it takes a profound experience of the mercy of God to put that kind of thing out there. And so Psalm 51, uh, if you, I'm not going to go all the way through it, but if you want to look at that this week, 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and then Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's process of assimilating this negative. He starts off, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, um, according to your great compassion, blot out all my rebellious acts. Uh, he, he says, I'm in the wrong. That's a big part of assimilating the negative. It's just the admission, I'm in the wrong. He says, I know my transgression. My sin is ever uh, before me. I was, I was sinful from birth. My mom conceived me in sin. It's like he's acknowledging that he is in the wrong, and then he acknowledges that God is in the right. And when he acknowledges that God is in the right and he is in the wrong, that is when he moves to I need God to change me. He's purge me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. He, he's acknowledging that he needs what God has on offer, that he doesn't have it in himself to, uh, to integrate all these parts. Um, he doesn't have it in himself to deal with the issue of his own guilt. Uh, he doesn't have it in himself to be a truly righteous person. He needs that to come from God. And when all of that happens, his response to it in Psalm 51 is he says, once you do this, God, once you purge me, once you clean me, once you create a clean heart in me and renew my right spirit and restore to me the joy of my salvation, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He says, open my lips and they'll declare your praise. I mean, so for David, revelation from Nathan resulted in desolation And he goes to God to experience consolation, and he ends in adoration. Open my lips. And he also includes witness. Now, worship and witness are kind of two sides of the same coin. Worship is a vertical-facing response to the revelation of God. Witness, our witness in the world, is a horizontal response. But they both have to do with the same thing. They both have to do with the the totality of our life. Um, And so David ends in, in Psalm 51 with this, the, the sacrifice God wants is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. He wants his inward sacrifice to match his outward sacrifices. So that is how revelation leads to desolation, leads to consolation, leads to adoration. I want to show you one more story. And this is New Testament. This is... Uh, This is Jesus. This is Luke uh, chapter 7. Another uh, pretty well-known story about a very awkward dinner party. Uh, So Luke 7, uh, starting in, in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. That's 
pretty normal. They would do that. They laid down to eat. They would rest themselves on their left arm and eat with their right hand. And these sorts of gatherings where Pharisees would have people to their house like this, they were open to the public. They were meant to be sort of a religious debate and discussion. Whenever a new religious teacher would come through town, the Pharisees would bring him to an environment like this to sort of grill and test and go back and forth. And people could come in and stand around the outside and watch. And so one of those people um, makes things a little awkward for this Pharisee. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. The, the text says that she lived a sinful life. Um, based on some context clues in this passage, most scholars have come to the conclusion that she was probably a prostitute. Now, if she was a prostitute, she probably was not a prostitute because she chose to be. Uh, that really wasn't the thing that women did at this time. Most people who wound up in prostitution at this time wound up there for one of two reasons. One, they were abandoned as an infant by their family, and they were taken in by someone who raised them and sold them into prostitution. Or two, they were divorced by a husband and had no way to uh, provide for themselves. Those are the two main ways that people wound up in prostitution. So she's maybe a prostitute. If she is, she's probably a victim. And look at her, her expression. Just look at her expression. She, she uses the perfume on him. She's wetting his feet with her tears. She's crying. There's an overflow of emotion. She wipes them with her hair. She kisses his feet. I mean, his, his sandal-wearing, walking-everywhere-in-the-desert feet. And when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, this is always interesting when the text gives you the inner dialogue of the person. Here's the inner dialogue of this Pharisee. Watching all of this happen, he said to himself, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet... He would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So this Pharisee, whose name uh, happens to be Simon, Simon is, uh, he's sizing everybody up and he's putting them into categories, which is one of the ways that we avoid assimilating the negative in our life. Like when we are confronted with the negative in our life, one thing we can do uh, to avoid the feeling of desolation is to uh, label somebody else, reduce them to that label so that we can feel superior to them and feel good about ourselves. And that's what Simon is doing when he says she's a sinner. He's trying to label her. He's trying to tape, take a deeply complex human being with, with a whole story and define her by one thing so that he can uncomplicate her and reduce her and feel superior. And Jesus is having none of it. So Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. And Simon says, I thought I was just thinking it. Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And when he says teacher, he doesn't use the, the proper title, rabbi. He uses the Greek word didaskalos. So he's being polite, but he's not exactly being respectful. Tell me, teacher, he said. And here's incredible key. This is one of, one of my favorite teachings of, of Jesus. Jesus says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. Now, denarii is worth like about a day's worth of minimum wage work. One person owed 500 days wages, and the other owed 50 days wages. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. It doesn't matter if you owe 500 or 50. If you don't, if you don't have one denarii, you can't pay anything. 
Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which, which of them will love him more? Now, probably Jesus is speaking Aramaic here, uh, and there's no word for gratitude in Aramaic. Uh, it was assumed based on the context. And so when Jesus says love here, he probably means gratitude. He means who's going to be more grateful? The one who had the 500 denarii forgiven or the one who had the 50 denarii debt to given? And Simon replied, um, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven would be more grateful. And Jesus says, you've judged correctly. Simon, you got it. Right answer. Now let's go deeper. He turned to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now what's he really asking? He's not really asking, do you see the woman? Everyone sees the woman. Everyone heard that jar break. Everyone smelled that perfume. Everyone heard her sobs. Everyone saw the woman. What's he really asking? Simon, can you see behind the thing behind the thing? Simon, can you see yourself in this woman? Jesus says, I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, like let alone provide a, a worker or a servant or someone to wash Jesus' feet for him. Simon didn't even put water out. These people have dirty feet. Simon, careless. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, which was the customary greeting. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet, which is showing honor and homage. It's the way you honor a king. You didn't put oil on my head. He means olive oil. It's just a way of honoring a guest. Olive oil was all over the place. It was, everyone had olive oil. Jesus says, you didn't put the common oil on my head, but she poured perfume. She poured the expensive stuff. Uh, on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, Simon, and here's, here's the bar. Uh, Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever's been forgiven little loves little. Whoever's been forgiven little loves little. What does he mean when he says that whoever's been forgiven little loves little? Like, is there anyone among us this morning who is bold enough to say, God only had to forgive a little bit of sin in my life because I've got it pretty much together? I mean, no. No. I mean, if you read your Bible like I do, you know verses like Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53.6, all we like sheep have turned astray, we turned each one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I thought that all mankind was sinful and separated from God, and that's absolutely true, but not everyone's aware of it, and not everyone is in touch with it. Some people have a, a, a relationship to their sin where they, where they think of their sin in sort of a theoretical sense. And when you think about sin theoretically, you can only experience mercy theoretically. This is what desolation and consolation is about. This is what I mean when I say a psycho-emotional impact. It's more than theoretical. It's more than, than I'm agreeing with a set of propositional beliefs. It is like this has touched me deeply in my life, and it has had an effect in the way that I perceive the world, the way that I perceive God, the way that I perceive myself, and I'm becoming a healthier and more integrated person. That is miles away from, you know, I signed a card and I prayed a prayer, etc. And I'm not saying that there's a high barrier <laughs> to salvation at all. Um, but God doesn't just call us uh, unto 
uh, agreement with a set of propositional beliefs. He calls us to a life, a life that is a living sacrifice, a life that isn't in denial about the negative stuff and is constantly uh, recognizing, admitting, accepting, bringing it to God. Um, And so the, the principle here is that we experience mercy from God, we experience forgiveness from God precisely to the degree that we're willing to admit we need it. That's it. And we, and we can worship God honestly, precisely to the degree that we're aware that we've received mercy from him. Can you see the waterfall of how this works? From revelation to desolation to consolation to adoration. Look at this woman, because I think this woman, I think we see a few things in her expression and the way she comes to honor Jesus that show uh, that she has assimilated the negative somehow in her life. And the text doesn't tell us what her story is. Like, we don't know how she came to this place. We don't know what happened between she was living a sinful life and now she can't stop kissing Jesus' feet. Maybe she heard the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, if you were a prostitute at this time and someone came to you saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that might do something to you. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I mean, maybe she was at the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe she had heard what, uh, what Jesus says to uh, some other Pharisees a couple chapters before, where he says, uh, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call people who know their sinners to repentance. I mean, he comes with real deal consolation. So let's look at this woman's uh, expression of honoring God, and just look at a, at a few things. I think the first thing that we see in her expression is humility. We see humility in her expression. She's kissing his feet. The second thing that we see in her expression is, is great emotional freedom. I think that's one of the, the great gifts of assimilating the negative in our lives, being willing to integrate it into ourselves, to merge with it, Uh, and to have it forgiven. One of the great gifts that that brings into our lives is the gift of emotional freedom. Because we can feel free to just be who we are. We don't have to be performing for people all the time. And you see the emotional freedom in her expression. She's crying and crying and crying. Uh, In fact, where the the text says, uh, verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. The, the, in the Greek, it doesn't say wet his feet. It says rain. Her tears rained down on his feet. I mean, we see this incredible emotional display. She has so much emotional freedom. We also see that she's pretty unconcerned with anyone else but, like, in the room but Jesus. Like, she, I guess she's in there, and she goes straight to him. She goes straight to him. And so she's unconcerned with anyone else but Jesus. That's detachment. Like, she's not concerned with what are the Pharisees going to think? What are these other people going to think of me? Um, she's not concerned about, oh, these, I have this reputation and those people know it. Like, there, she is there to meet with Jesus Christ and to honor him. And so that's the kind of detachment that we're looking for. And then we also see great sacrifice uh, as represented in the alabaster jar. The ointment that was kept in an alabaster jar would have been probably olive oil that was mixed with other things, and it was sealed up in a vial, and it was worn around the neck, and it could be used as currency. It was very valuable. 
Um, you wonder where she got the money to buy it or how she acquired it. That probably has something to do with her sinful life. That's why a lot of scholars think that maybe she was a prostitute. Um, but in order to get the perfume out of this jar, it had to be broken. It had to be broken open. And she breaks it open, and she pours it all over Jesus' feet. I mean, it's, this jar could have been her life savings in a sense. I mean, it, it represents security. It represents a little bit of prosperity. It represents the ability to have some agency in the world because I have some money. And she busts it open. She busts it open to honor Christ. And so we see sacrifice represented also in her offering. And so she has assimilated the negative. Somehow in her background, she has moved from a place where she's identifying primarily as, um, you know, a sinner to identifying as someone who's received mercy. Or perhaps she's gone from identifying as someone who is righteous in and of themselves, and she's been absolutely devastated by the holiness of God. And so she has experienced deep consolation. I mean, that's what, that's what Jesus says. I mean, he says, based on her behavior, you can tell what's gone on in her life. I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. So Jesus says, I can see in her life what's happened in the heart. And I wonder if, if, we, if we were able to assimilate the negative, and if we were able to detach from a worldly point of view, a worldly perspective on ourselves, the things in the world that we're tapping for validation and security and those sorts of things, and attach to God and find those things in him, that it would make some sort of tangible difference in our lives that would be evident to people around us. And our lives would actually start to look different than the culture around us. We would not be conformed to the pattern of this world. We would be transformed by the renewing of our mind because we've received revelation from God that tells us the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. We experience the desolation that comes from getting honest about the sin in our lives and about the guilt and the things that we can't get over and the things that control us. And because of that, we could experience deep, deep consolation, mercy and forgiveness and healing and acceptance from God. And that's what transforms a life. And when God's transformed your life, I mean, the only, the only response to a sacrifice as extravagant as his only son is for me to put everything on the table. That's what Paul's saying. Romans 12.1. It's your true and proper worship. It's the fitting worship. It's the only reasonable worship. It's the only response that even remotely makes sense in light of the fact that God entered into the human story when we were powerless to do anything about the sin that dominates us and compels us. Uh, God entered in and intervened on our behalf on his own initiative, like not because of anything we did. We weren't looking for it. We weren't asking for it. God came in and did something about it. He did what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh so that we could be adopted into his family as the beloved sons and daughters of God. And beloved sons and daughters of God 
have a firm foundation to stand on to be able to assimilate the negatives in our lives. When we do that, we'll experience great mercy. And when we experience great, deep, impactful mercy, then we are precisely in the place where we can offer deep, honest adoration. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, uh, we come before you and we acknowledge that only you are holy. We acknowledge that you are in the right. And we acknowledge that we are nothing to ourselves but guides to our own destruction without you. And so we invite you now in this moment to come to us. We invite you to speak to us and we invite you uh, in the words of David to search our hearts, God, and, and know us, test us and know our anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in us. Father, it's, it's, it's bold, but that's what we need. Uh, we need to be um, devastated. We need to be ruined uh, before you so that we can actually experience deep, deep consolation from you. And so search us, see if there's any offensive way in us, and lead us, Father, in the life everlasting. In the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.